issues of our day. Um, I read it every every time I get it, and I find something of tremendous value in it every time I read it. Uh, Ed's a longtime friend of the diaconate program. Uh, when we were running our own academic intellectual dimension of the program, Ed was one of our teachers, and uh, he was an outstanding teacher and is an outstanding teacher. And we welcome him here today on the, uh, the feast of a presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. A uh, very fitting feast to uh, uh, to have Ed with us, and uh, I think it would be very proper and fitting if we started this morning's meeting with the uh, the Ave Maria. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Everybody in? I'm getting a message that my bandwidth is low, so I'm going to hand this up to uh, Mr. Ed Maker. Thank you, Ed. Okay. Thank you, uh, Deacon Frank, and, and thanks to everybody for, for being here, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, I love uh, being involved with the deacons. Uh, it's one of my favorite things, uh, and this is one of my favorite subjects to talk about. I can talk all day, but I won't. Uh, so let me give you a, a sort of a quick overview of what my kind of my agenda is, and then I'll, I'll dive uh, dive right into it. You know, we uh, one of the unique and special things about being uh, Catholic and also about our Orthodox brethren is our deep devotion to Mary and how central she is to our liturgical life and our spiritual life. And I think some people on the outside don't quite get how significant uh, the Blessed Mother is to us. And also how everything that uh, that we do and think and, and pray about Mary also really is about Jesus. Uh, and it also really is about the Father and the Holy Spirit. Everything about Mary brings us closer to our relationship with God. And that's I think one of the reasons that we, we have such great love for her uh, is because she does that for us. Uh, uh, she is one of us and she helps us enter into that, that life of the Blessed Trinity, where of course she is in heaven, body and soul with, uh, with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So um, some of the themes, just two little themes that uh, I'd like to use as kind of a background of some of what I'm gonna be speaking about. It's one is the relationship between knowing somebody and loving them. And the other one is the relationship between loving someone and then trusting them as well. Uh, and in particular, you know, I, I, the passage from scripture that I like to, uh, uh, to keep in mind for things like this is from, uh, from Luke's gospel, right at the end of the, the birth, the infancy uh, narrows, right after the, you know, the angels leave, the birds leave, and then, then this by themselves. Uh, and uh, the gospel says, Mary kept all these things reflecting on them in her heart. And it's such a beautiful little statement, and I think it says an awful lot about America because she was a contemplative, and she held these things about revelation, what was going on with her, her practical existence in this world with, with the Son of God as her son, but also weird in her heart too. Uh, you know, when she reflects on all these things in our heart, in her heart, we're there too. Uh, you know, she's our mother as well, and she reflects on on what's going on with us, and she cares about us as a mother as well. So that's my little scriptural passage for the background. So let's talk a little bit about the relationship between knowing and loving, because this is the introduction to really understanding what the importance and role of doctrine is in our in our faith. You know, doctrine is very, very important, obviously, to us. You spend a lot of time learning doctrine, right? In your program, we've got the catechism, we've got and all this stuff uh, helping us to learn doctrine. Um, and it's really, really important, obviously. But sometimes uh, we have to that we don't treat uh, Catholic doctrine as just sort of an intellectual subject. You know, universities now, especially the Catholic ones, the theology department has been changed to the religious studies department, as if it's just purely a matter of academic interest. It's, it's not. Uh, if we look at it that way, that's a dead end 
to a dry and really abstract faith, if there's any faith really there at all. not an academic subject. It's not an ideology. It's not something to be memorized, even though it's good to memorize things. Uh, it is a thing. Uh, it is a relationship with per- a person, right? God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, three persons. And we want to get to know them better so that we can love them better. Uh, you know, we uh, it, think of it like when we, when we uh, first meet somebody and we want to date them and want to get married to them, you know? One of the things we do would be when we go out on dates, uh, well, in the old days, nobody goes dates now, I guess, uh, but we talk about each other. You know, what do you like? What are you interested in? What have you been? What's your childhood like? We want to know everything about the person that we're, we're meeting, especially if we think that they are a special person and going to be our life partner. Uh, you can't really love somebody unless unless you know them. Of course, knowing is not enough. You know, uh, they, they on TV, they still do those ads for the dating programs, you know, Match.com and eHarmony and all that stuff. Then you fill out your questionnaire and they match you up with, you know, common things and, um, and they give you the printout and all that kind of stuff. Nobody would say, I love this person just because I now know all these things about them, right? I mean, if you went on that first date, with that person and said, hey, uh, uh, I love you, uh, as soon as you walk in there, they would think that you were crazy, right? Uh, and they'd run out the back door. Uh, knowing is not enough. We have to enter into, into the relationship. And I think Mary is a wonderful example of how this is done in her, uh, in her real life here on earth, right? Everything we see about Mary is her listening to God and listening to God and opening her heart to God. Yes, she learns things. She knew things. Obviously, as she was growing with, with Jesus in their relationship together, she learned more about him. But it was really her open in her heart that's most important. You know, she opened her womb, obviously, to the Son of God, but she also opened her heart and, and her mind. She's listening. She's contempl- contemplating what's going on, right? Reflecting on them in her heart. You know, she's so in tune with, uh, with the Word of God. You think of the Magnificat, which you guys pray every evening, right? How it's, it's a deeply scriptural love song about how much God loves her and loves us. So when we think about that, she shows us a good example of, of how to know and therefore how, how to love. So let me go back now and take a look at so, a couple of the scriptural passages that relate to Mary. I want to show uh, show this in them and talk a little bit about them. You know, all of the seeds of our of our doctrines about Mary rest in the scriptures. Uh, not necessarily explicitly, but they're there. They're there in the Old Testament, uh, usually by prophecy or by what they call typologies. Some of the women of the Old Testament are uh, types, they're examples, or they're predecessors in a way of Mary. Um, you know, when you pray the, the, the office on your marrying feast, you'll pray, I don't know if you do it today because it's a Saturday, but you uh, usually one of the antiphons is from Judith, right? She is the great honor of our race. Uh, Judith was a, a predecessor of Mary, a type of Mary. But I want to focus a little bit in on the, on the, on the New Testament because there it's a little, it's obviously a little more explicit because Mary's a major player. You know, in, we're introduced to Mary, uh, of course, by the, by the angel's uh, visit. You know, she's a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Very common Jewish name, right? Mary. Uh, she was from a small town, which if you ever visit the, uh, the Holy Land, I haven't, but Nazareth is still a small town. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's, a, it's just a, you know, it's a podunk little village out there. And she's just a young girl. Um, and she's just a regular person going about her life. And then all of a sudden the angel comes, right? And the angel says something very strange to her. Rejoice, you know, full of grace, hail, full of grace. The Lord is with you. Strange thing to say uh, in general. Uh, it's a, certainly a strange thing to say to a young girl uh, who's waiting to get married. Now, the key thing here, though, is the reaction of Mary then to this. Uh, she's greatly troubled. Who wouldn't be? The angel shows up, right? Uh, but it's interesting. The other person to whom the Zachariah, we talked to about John the Baptist, Zachariah doubted. 
he didn't believe the angel. He said, wow, what kind of sign am I going to have for this? As if a visit from an angel wasn't enough? Right? That's why he was, he didn't believe. But Mary, even though she greatly troubled, she ponders. And again, she's thinking about these in her heart. And she asks for an explanation. How is this going to happen? Not whether it's going to happen, but how is it going to happen? Uh, she immediately is attuned to the will of God. Uh, and that's when the angel uh, lays out the plan, right? You know, Mary, of course, is troubled. Of course, she's uh, she's afraid. But she enters into dialogue with God through the angel, which is also a key point of, of our encounter with Mary, is this dialogue that she has with us and then the dialogue that she has with God on our behalf. So when the angel lays out the, uh, the whole plan, uh, Mary gets on board, right? I'm your... I'm your I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. I'm the young servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. She believes the angel and she accepts this. She's giving us a tremendous example of what a uh, what a true disciple is. We hear the word of God, we accept it, and then we do something about it. Right? Because Mary then immediately started to prepare for her motherhood. Um, you know, it's funny, so many of the, the words that the gospel uses there about the encounter between the angel and Mary are so telling. You know, the one phrase about hail full of grace. Uh, it's a Greek word that's used only once in the whole of scripture, only for Mary. Um, and it's obviously a sign of great favor uh, for her that she's uniquely called. Unlike anybody else who's called, you know, a lot of the gospels, a lot of the Old Testament full of call, right? God's calling the prophets. Jesus calls his apostles. Only Mary is called in this way uh, by an angel telling her she is full of grace. She is full of favor from God. She has already been graced. And the other interesting thing is the language that the angel uses about how the Holy Spirit will overshadow right? and you will become pregnant. Overshadowing. And the word that's used there is the sick word that the Old Testament used for when the cloud of glory came uh, and overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant, the tent in the Ark of the Covenant. And you know that Mary had to have understood what that meant. She was a good Jewish girl. She went to the synagogue, of course, sitting separately from the men, the way it was in the old days. Uh, but she knew what that meant. And that the angel deliberately was telling her that she was there, the new Ark of the Covenant. And that the Spirit of God would overshadow her like that. So uh, Mary, of course, says yes, and then she becomes pregnant. It's not like it, it, it's not as if she was already pregnant and the angel came to give her the news. Uh, you will bear a child, he said. And uh, it's a it's kind of a, a, a funny thing. The old expression, I think it goes back to St. Augustine, is that she conceived the Lord in her heart before she conceived him in her womb. And it's funny, I'm sure that in all of your churches you have images of the Annunciation. And it's funny, so many of the images, especially when they go back to the, uh, the old Middle Ages uh, and the Renaissance, those paintings, you'll see the angel there talking to Mary, and she's usually sitting there reading a book, it's a holy book, and you see the Holy Spirit coming down, right, in a little, uh, like a ray of light or something. And, you know, it, it's funny, you see Mary very often sitting in a very awkward position. She's kind of sitting off to the side and twisted over. She's like, kind of weird. Why are you so uncomfortable? If you watch the, if you draw a line from the Holy Spirit as it's coming down, so often you'll see the line goes to her, her head, and she's hearing, to her heart, and then to her womb. Just follow the line straight down. It's a little bit of secret catechesis there going on in, in a lot of these images. So anyway, uh, the second part of the scripture that I want to mention is really something, it's funny, it's, it's what the scripture doesn't mention. It's the hidden life of the Holy Family. You know, the, the scripture is virtually silent about this. It's the finding in the temple, basically, uh, and that's it. Um, and after the finding in the temple, uh, um, you know, Jesus goes back there, and um, that was after his three days being lost, right? Three days. What does that sound like? Uh, it sounds like the resurrection. Lost in for three days and then he was found by his disciples well he's lost in jerusalem for three days and then he's found by his two two top disciples joseph and mary but at the end of that whole narrative um it says he went down with them and came to nazareth and was obedient to them 
And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And this is a reference really to how many years? 20 more years of hidden life, secret life. Jesus just living an everyday life with Mary and Joseph in his humble little home, working for a living as a construction worker and growing in stature and in favor. Uh, you know, we focus so much on the active ministry, but it's hard to imagine what must it have been like for Mary and Joseph to wake up every day and the word of God, the son of God, is there with them having breakfast, chatting about what's going on in the world. The level of intimacy that, that Mary had with Jesus uh, is, is astounding. It's, uh, it's just, you know, again, something I don't, don't think we quite get from the, uh, from the rest of the scripture, but if we contemplate on it the way that she did, uh, we can see that because it says his mother kept all these things in her heart. She's contemplating her really everyday intimacy with Jesus. And of course, when we're in prayer then, when we're praying our rosary, when you guys are praying the office, we're entering into an intimacy with someone who knows us and loves us. Uh, and well, especially when we're praying the rosary, we're entering into that relationship with the person who knew him best in this world, which was his mother. Uh, so we're entering into that intimate relationship. So those are the two things I wanted to talk about just from the scripture. Of course, there's other wonderful passages in the scripture about Mary, the wedding feast of Cana, where she gives the best advice that anybody's ever given anybody in the history of the world, right? Do whatever he tells you, right? Which is what the advice that we should all follow, right? It's the, uh, uh, the source of the famous devotion to, to Mary uh, and Jesus through Mary to Jesus. That's uh, St. Fre- uh, Louis de Montfort's famous phrase, through Mary to Jesus. Um, and then, of course, at the foot of the cross, where Mary is specifically named as our mother, uh, when John, when Jesus gives Mary to John as her mother, he's really giving her to us as our mother. Um, all of the dogmas that we, we talk about, which I'm going to talk about in a second, all of our dogmas, all the things we believe about Mary go back to the scripture. And in fact, all of our devotion to Mary goes back to the scripture. We are doing what uh, Mary herself said we should do and we would do in her Magnificat, right? All generations will call me blessed. And that's what we do, uh, right? She said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're just taking mom at her word, right? Uh, she's telling us what to do, so we're doing it. So let's talk now a little bit about the actual dogmas. And I don't, I don't want to, again, get bogged down too much in um, doctrinal minutiae. But it's very, very important, I think, especially for you in your, in your teaching and preaching role, to be able to explain this uh, to people and also to put these dogmas in the larger context. Why are they so important and how do they relate to other doctrines? You know, the, the, the uh, Pope Benedict used to talk about the architecture of the faith. And what he was talking about was the way that all of the different teachings and doctrines work together to uh, really to explain to us the, the deepness and the richness of our faith. So these Marian doctrines that we have are particularly to help us to know her better and therefore to love her better and therefore to love God better and know God better. Um, so we'll talk about the, it's funny, you can go through the calendar year and, and see the great feasts. I mean, there's dozens of feasts of Mary throughout the year. We're on one right now, the great feast of the presentation. Uh, if you look into the local calendars of different churches around the world, uh, countries around the world, there are even more. You know, the apparitions in different places, uh, different miracles that are attributed to Mary, dedication of churches to Mary, right? There's, they're all over the place. Uh, but I want to talk about some of the, just the major ones. First, January 1st, Mary, the mother of God. Right? This is the fundamental Marian doctrine, and it comes right from the scriptures itself. She is the mother of Jesus. Right, just as uh, Jesus was begotten by the Father in his divinity, he was begotten of Mary by his, in his humanity. And because Jesus is both divine and human, she is the mother of God. She's not just the mother of the earthly uh, side of Jesus. She's the mother of God, because Jesus is God. We have to get this right. This is one of the big fights in the early church. You know, the Council of Ephesus in 425, that's what that council was all about was clarifying this to make sure that everybody understood that Mary's the mother of God and we have to call her that because otherwise we get the nature of Jesus wrong. You know, she was the bearer of God. That's actually the theotokos. That's the actual term they use in Greek, the bearer of 
of God. But it's the same, it's the same thing. All of the other Marian doctrines in some way relate to this. Right? Just as this relates directly to the nature of, of Jesus. And also to the nature, of course, then of the of the Eucharist. Because the divine and human nature of Jesus is also reflected in the sacramental nature of the Eucharist, right? Uh, it's a divine and human thing. The church is a divine and human thing. We are all, in a sense, divine and human. The, the mother of God part, really, it plays out into so many other things. It's also essential, I think, for us to really understand God. God wanted to reveal to us himself by taking on human nature. He wanted us to understand him by seeing one of us who is also God. Uh, uh, that's why the, the human nature of Jesus is so important. Otherwise, God is inaccessible uh, and really incomprehensible, I think, uh, to us. Uh, and you can see that in the way that God reveals himself in the Old Testament. It's nowhere near as intimate as the way that he reveals himself in the, in the New Testament uh, by taking on human nature in, in Jesus himself. So by, by looking at this, uh, this idea of Mary as the mother of God, this shows how we're united with her in our human, in our human nature. Uh, Pope Francis, he actually recently sort of tied two other uh, bits of doctrine together. He called Mary mother of mercy. Of course, that's a, an old term for her, mater misericordia, right? Uh, it's in the Salve Regina. Uh, but he wanted to stress this, you know, Pope Francis, very big on divine mercy, right? Uh, the divine mercy uh, uh, devotion has, become, has really swept through the Catholic world in the last century. Um, but Pope Francis said this, she's the mother of mercy because she bore in her womb the very face of divine mercy, Jesus. Right? So this mother of God part is so significant. You know, I, I sometimes think that uh, January 1st gets kind of short shrift in our uh, liturgical calendar. So soon after Christmas, we're kind of burned out after Christmas. We're looking forward to, I guess, the epiphany uh, and the beginning of the new, uh, uh, the new year. We're probably a little burned out from the party the night before. Uh, it's, it's just such a significant uh, feast for us. Um, so that's, that's the first major, major dogma, Mary, the mother of God. The second is Mary ever virgin. We say this all the time. We hear it all the time uh, at, at Mass, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mary ever virgin. Uh, um, and I think this is one of, those, one of those dogmas that we forget how full it is. I mean, we all believe in the virginal conception, right? That Mary was a virgin before she conceived Jesus. Uh, the angel tells us that. The scripture tells us that explicitly. But we also believe that Jesus was miraculously born so that Mary preserved her physical virginity. We also believe that Mary was a virgin throughout her life, that she was a special offering to God so that she was never, uh, uh, her virginity was never breached. Uh, she never had relations with a man. This has been the uninterrupted teaching of the church from the very early days. In fact, this feast day today is a reflection of that because this feast day today is when Mary's parents offered her to the temple, right? A special offering to the temple for service. And which was really a, a, a presaging of her self offering at the Annunciation. Uh, and only virgins could serve in the temple. Uh, so that's how uh, Mary was offered, and that's how she was then preserved throughout her life. And again, this is not some modern thing. This has not been controversial. It wasn't controversial until the Reformation, really. And even the great reformers, uh, Luther, Calvin, a lot of those guys, Wesley, uh, they all absolutely held to the perpetual virginity of Mary as an unshakable truth of the faith. Our Eastern brethren absolutely hold to this without any question whatever. They call a Parthenos, the ever virgin, they call her in their liturgy repeatedly. If you ever go to an Eastern uh, rite liturgy, you hear they pray to Mary a lot in their liturgy, uh, and they use her perpetual virginity constantly in speaking of that. Um, you know, it, there are people now, even this day, who, who cast doubt as the perpetual virginity of Mary, but even the virginal conception. Um, and, you know, to, to cast doubt on the virginal conception uh, is really to basically set oneself aside from Christianity completely. We cannot be authentically Christian unless we accept the virgin concept, virginal conception, virginal birth uh, by Mary. Uh, it's a core 
principle, and it reflects historical Christianity all the way back to the beginning. Um, this doctrine also, it's not just some weird thing about, uh, um, about, about Mary, you know, okay, she's a virgin, that's a little odd, I think, in this day and age, which scorns virginity anyway, but it also tells us something about our vocation in life. You know, just as Mary was a self-gift uh, by giving herself over to God and also by preserving her virginity as a gift to God, so too we are called to love. We're called to give ourselves to others. Mary was consecrated through her self-gift, radical self-gift that she gave herself to God and to us uh, uh, by accepting this very strange uh, uh, conception, right? Uh, completely non-natural, miraculous conception, but she accepted this as a self-gift. Um, it also is very often misunderstood because people think that it's a denial of the legitimacy of sexuality, and it is absolutely not. Mary's gift of her, of her sexuality, a gift of her womanhood, and also a gift of her motherhood and her femininity is really, it's a, uh, a celebration of authentic, sexuality. You know, it's a, it, it's one of those paradoxes. And, you know, in the heart of our faith, there are a lot of paradoxes, but we have this fruitful virginity, which is kind of a strange thing, right? But it, what it's telling us is that pure love is always fruitful. It doesn't always have to produce a child to be fruitful, uh, whether it's married love or the, or the service love that you have for the church by offering yourselves to the church. It's, it's a fruitful, pure, love, right? God's love for us is a pure love that is fruitful, and it's the same thing. So Mary's uh, virginity and her absolute fidelity to Joseph and his fidelity to her uh, is a sign of that gift. It's a sign of the radical gift of self that we are all called to. And, you know, it also is a celebration of femininity, what it is to be a woman. Uh, um, you know, Mary, sometimes I think we, we think Mary is this disembodied spirit. She's Kind of, well, sometimes she's, I think people treat her as like a superhuman, right? She's kind of uh, much more than us. No, she wasn't. She was a regular woman. Uh, she became uh, pregnant and engaged when she was a young girl. She was probably 14, 15 years old, right? She lived a long life uh, with her extended family and ultimately with St. John, traveled around uh, uh, with him. She was a real woman. She was a real mother. She took care of Jesus like a mother did. She took care of Joseph like a wife did. Uh, uh, she was a woman in all the senses of the word. Uh, you know, she is, um, she's the symbol of the bride and the bridegroom that we also use as a symbol of the church uh, and God, right? The Holy Spirit is her spouse, just as uh, the Holy Spirit is the spouse of the church. Uh, you know, this, this affirmation of her authentic femininity is then an affirmation of our authentic masculinity. If femininity is blessed, right, God created the male and female, right, and they were good. Uh, uh, so too we. Mary's femininity celebrates our masculinity. It's kind of another one of those kind of, uh, kind of paradoxes. And my favorite part of the, uh, about the, the virginal conception and the perpetual virginity of Mary is it shows how creative God is. You know, we, uh, I think we try to put God in a box where he acts in, a, in only in ways that make sense to us, uh, you know, because we only understand how we act. But God is very strange, uh, and he does surprising things. Uh, and the whole idea that uh, the, the eternal God, the creator of the universe, would come down to a little town in the middle of nowhere and talk to a little girl uh, who was a nobody, absolute nobody. Uh, and work this miracle for her um, just shows that you know we can't we can't limit God by our crazy categories and our reason. He will always surprise. Um, and it also I think gives us a, a special link to Mary. You know, think about the circumstances at the time, right? She's betrothed, she's pregnant. That's a scandal. Right? In fact, Joseph could have divorced her, and he could have exposed her, and she could have been stoned to death under the Mosaic law. This is a bad situation for her by human terms. I mean, can you imagine the conversation between her and Joseph? Right? Oh, uh, you know, this is the ultimate, honey, I have something to tell you kind of conversation. Right? Imagine her going to her mom and dad. Mom, dad, 
uh, guess what? Uh, you know, so if, if we think that Mary can't understand our struggles and our crazy situations, she's seen everything and she lived through it and she did it with faith and trust because the angel told her and she trusted God because she loved God. Uh, so if, if she can do it, she'll help us do it. Uh, so it, I, the, virginal, the virginal conception really connects us directly with Mary in our, in our struggles in life. It's beautiful. The next uh, um, uh, dogma is the Assumption. Of course, we're going through the calendar year. Uh, the Assumption in August. This is one of the ancient, ancient feasts of the church. Uh, August 15th was celebrated as a feast of Mary way back into the time of the fathers of the church. Um, I was talking about this last night with some, uh, uh, some young adults. We were doing a discussion, and uh, uh, I brought up the Assumption as an example of how dogmas are brought about. You know, think of the historical context of the Assumption. Christians had believed this forever. This faith goes way back to the ancient church, that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. No one ever claimed to know where Mary was buried. They did claim to know where she was assumed from. Uh, it was Ephesus. Well, it was a church in Jerusalem that claimed it too, but it was most likely Ephesus. Um, no one ever claimed to have a relic of Mary's body, even though relics of saints' bodies were hugely important in the old days. Right? Everybody uh, throughout history, the Eastern Church holds to this. They call it the Dormition or the Falling Sleep of Mary. Um, so it's not like the Pope made this up in in 1950. Um, the historical context: Europe had just torn itself apart, had destroyed its culture in two horrendous wars, a gigantic battle between competing views of what it is even to be human, the communist view, which was completely materialistic, the fascist view, which was it's all about power, the, uh, the pure capitalist view, which was it's all about finance and, and, and things like that. This, this battle going on, um, you know, the hatred of people, the racism of people, uh, especially directed towards, towards the Jews. Um, and then, you know, actually right afterwards comes the sexual revolution, which is another denial of the true nature of the human person. It's at that point that the Pope decided uh, it's time. And the way he did it was interesting. He, he basically took a poll. He sent out a, a question to the bishops of the world. And he asked them, do you think it's good right now? Is, it, is the time right to, uh, uh, to proclaim the dogma of the assumption? And the bishops, of course, consulted with the people. And there was this, an uprising of support. The bishops, when they responded back to the Holy Father, were virtually unanimous in saying, yes, do it and do it now. It's important. And that's, and that's how it came about. So, so to me, it's a, it's a wonderful example of how the development of, of doctrine is an answer to our problems of our day and age. Because the assumption, of course, is a celebration of authentic humanity, the union of body and soul and our eternal destiny. Uh, it, it rejects the materialism that says this is all there is. It rejects the dualism that says well, only my soul goes to heaven, my body doesn't matter. It reaffirms God's original plan that we that was established in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam and Eve, that we are meant to live in union with him, body and soul, uh, in eternal happiness. So it's, it's also, I think, a reminder that no matter how bad things are for us, no matter how sick I am, no matter how bad my body is, no matter how bad my material circumstances are, I am united with Mary in heaven, body and soul. Of course, Jesus is there too, body and soul, but Mary is, is, is one of us completely, and she's our mom, and she's there, body and soul. So uh, I you know, get up in the morning, I'm aching and painting and all that kind of stuff, but I'm still connected to her no matter how bad it is. Uh, and it's also, she's the first fruits, and she's showing us what's gonna happen to us in the end. That in the end, we will be united with God, body and soul, in the New Jerusalem. So let's follow it along to the end of the year then, uh, uh, to the Immaculate, the Immaculate Conception. Uh, uh, this was also a dogma that was defined in the 1800s. It was defined especially by the Pope through one of his exercises of his infallible uh, uh, charism, the ability to teach uh, ex cathedra. You know, uh, Mary Immaculate Conceived is a strange doctrine for people. Uh, it was very difficult for the theologians to understand. It really was only in the late Middle Ages that the theologians came to the right explanation that made sense to them. It's a wonderful example of, of the development of doctrine, also the fallibility of, 
of theologians, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, didn't buy the Immaculate Conception, wasn't convinced. Uh, he couldn't figure it out. Uh, it was actually John Duns Scotus who figured it out some time later, uh, making Thomas no doubt very jealous in heaven because he, Duns Scotus was a Franciscan and, and Thomas was a Dominican. So. But at least it wasn't the Jesuits who figured it out. So he's, he's happy with that. Anyway, uh, you know, this one goes back again to some of the things that were said in the, um, in the Old Testament and some of the things that were, were done in the Old Testament. You know, things like the, we've looked back now and we start to see this, you know, oh, the burning bush, right? It's consumed with fire, uh, okay. Um, Judith saying, you are the highest honor of our race. Okay, well, wow, that's quite a thing to say about her, but again, she's a presage of, of Mary. You know, a, a reflection on the true effects of original sin and how original sin corrupts us, but not completely. That we are still, we still have an innate dignity that could have been preserved if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. Um, you know, the idea of the Ark of the Covenant, this pure, beautiful thing that was made according to God's plan that then held the covenant, right? Uh, um, things like that. We look back at that and we reflect on that. And also we then reflect on the, just the incredible dignity of the human person, uh, how we were meant to be the way that God created us, uh, created Adam and Eve at least. Um, so what, what the theologians eventually figured out was that Mary was preserved free from original sin as a special vessel for Christ, but she still needed Jesus to be that way. Uh, everybody requires the salvation from Jesus. But because God is outside of time, it kind of applied retroactively, in a sense, to Mary. She was preserved. One of the examples that they use is, uh, you know, when we sin, we fall into a hole and we need God to pull us out. Well, in the case of Mary, God stopped her from falling in the hole. So she never experienced the original sin, never experienced personal sin. Of course, just because she never sinned, it doesn't make her any less human. Adam and Eve were perfectly human, they sinned. Uh, Mary was perfectly human. She chose not to. Her will and her mind and her heart were so conformed to God's will uh, that she never sinned. Was she tempted? Of course she was. She was human. Uh, I imagine the devil went after her pretty hard at times, uh, especially since on those difficult times when she's running away from, from Herod and his murderers, right? Do you think that Mary wasn't tempted uh, to despair uh, then? Uh, do you think that Mary wasn't uh, attempted to despair when she saw her son on the cross being murdered by the Romans? Uh, uh, of course she was. Of course she was. But she resisted. Uh, and again, even though this dogma is about Mary, it really is again about Jesus. How Jesus' redemption affects everyone. It's available to everyone. And not, again, not just the way that we think of it, uh, working forwards from the, from the day of the resurrection. It can work backwards. Uh, you know, Holy Saturday, which we celebrate the harrowing of hell when Jesus goes down to hell, the limbo of the fathers, and releases those saints from the, uh, from the old uh, time of the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews, or the Israelites. That's the retroactive working of salvation, right? Uh, you know, St. John the Baptist, he's in heaven because Jesus went back and saved him. Uh, so Mary does the same thing to us. It shows us that this is really what's most important, is to be saved. By Jesus, uh, however it happens, however the long road is, you know, we may be going to confession every week and be kept in a state of grace all the time, or we may be away from confession for 50 years and be brought back to a state of grace on our deathbed. It's always Jesus who does it. We all need it, uh, and even Mary needs it. Uh, so, um, God will always work in again in strange ways that we don't understand, and this is yet another one. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful feast day uh, and a beautiful devotion. Um, so uh, that takes us through the, the calendar year, basically, on the major Marian feasts. Um, and what I want to do now is, is moving on. That's that, so that's helping us to know Mary. Now, how do we move on from that to loving and then also trusting her and, and trusting God? You know, we um, trust is essential to any real relationship, any loving relationship, any marriage, obviously. Trust is everything uh, in, a, in a marriage. We have to be able to trust our spouse. 
to put us first and so that we can then put put our spouse first. Trust in a friend's relationship, trust in our relationship with the church. Although that's sometimes not the easiest thing in the world, uh, we still have to try, right? It's difficult. Um, you know, Mary's trust is shown from the from the very beginning, as I was talking about with the scripture, her trust in God, her trust in the message, her trust in the other people in her life. You know, she trusted that Joseph would treat her right. He trusted that her parents would treat her right. Uh, when she went off to uh, deal with Elizabeth, she trusted that Elizabeth would welcome her and not shun her as, oh my gosh, an unwed mother, isn't this horribly scandalous? Right? She trusted that Elizabeth would accept her. Um, you know, the story of Mary and Joseph, uh, the infancy narratives, is fraught with danger and fraught with trouble. You know, it kind of goes smoothly, we think, right? But think about it again. Think about how difficult it was for Mary, and especially the trust that she showed in God that things would work out. You know, the whole thing, as I said before, about telling her family, telling Joseph. You know, Mary had a plan. Joseph had a plan. They were going to settle down. They were going to have a nice marriage. They were going to have a couple of kids. They were going to, you know, retire to North Carolina or whatever and, uh, and, and golf when they were when they were finished. All that stuff, right? Uh, you know, plan A going out the window. Um, they didn't plan to go to, to Bethlehem. Uh, that was a crazy thing that happened, right? I mean, think about trying to walk or ride a donkey or whatever it is to, uh, to Bethlehem from Nazareth. It's a, over 100 miles. Uh, I looked at it on Google Maps yesterday. Uh, it's over 100 miles and it's uphill. Uh, wow, do that when you're nine months pregnant. Pretty awful. Uh, um, everything that happened in Bethlehem, there's no room at the inn. They gotta, they gotta have their baby in a blank hole in a, in a cave where all the cows and the sheep are doing whatever. Um, these crazy uh, uh, shepherds come, the crazy uh, king, you know, the three kings. Then, oh my gosh, Herod's gonna kill us kill the baby, we gotta run 200 miles to Egypt, right? You know, how can you do this if you don't trust in God? Uh, that was not easy. We sometimes I think, you know, silent night, holy night, you know, a little town of Bethlehem, we kind of make it kind of a, a, a sweet and easy, but seriously, it was not sweet uh, for her or for Joseph or for Jesus. But when we trust, we can do it. You know, Mary trusted God and she took the risks. She said yes. She told her parents. She told Joseph. She went to Elizabeth. She came back. She had the baby. She went to Bethlehem. She went to Egypt. She came back. Right? She risked everything. Um, and so we can too. You know, Mary was as transparent a person as there ever was in the, in the history of the world. Right? It was right there. You saw it. Everybody who saw her saw it. Right? Think of Elizabeth and St. John. As soon as she walks in the door, they saw who she was and what she was. Uh, um, so that's a, that's a lesson to us about how we can relate to God. We can be transparent with God. We don't have to be ashamed of ourselves when we talk to God. We don't have to be ashamed of ourselves because of our sins. When we pray to Mary, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. We can walk with her just as she walked with Joseph. We can travel with her over the hardships, just as she traveled with Joseph. She won't give up on us. God won't give up on us, right? no matter what. Um, you know, we see this uh, in the apparitions uh, over the past centuries uh, in particular. I love talking about apparitions uh, uh, because I think they really tell us something special about how we can relate to Mary and how that can help us relate, relate to God. The thing I love uh, most about the apparitions is some common elements in them. I'm particularly thinking about Fatima, Lourdes, Knock, Guadalupe, things like that. Um, every one of those apparitions was to a complete and utter nobody in the middle of nowhere. I'm sure Mary has appeared to popes. I'm sure that Mary has appeared to kings. But the apparitions and the lessons that we, we hold dearest to our hearts are the ones where she appeared to nobodies from nowhere just like us, right? I'm a nobody from nowhere. Uh, uh, you know, I'm just Ed from Yonkers. Who the heck is he? Uh, you know, she's just uh, Jacinta from Fatima. Uh, just Bernadette from Lourdes. She's just all those those peasants uh, in Knock, Juan Diego. I mean, talk about a nobody. Uh, 
And in each one of those aberrations, you know, it's not coming with fire and brimstone and overawe everybody with her majestic power, which she could do if that was the will of God. She's the queen of heaven. She's the queen of the universe. Uh, but she appeared as a young woman, the beautiful woman. They kept on calling her the beautiful woman. If, you have, if you've seen the uh, the movie Fatima that just came out, I think last year, you get it, or this earlier this year, you get a chance to see it uh, because it's beautifully portrayed Mary as a beautiful young woman, which is how she was. Uh, she was very maternal. She took a very sincere maternal interest in these people. Uh, you know, her heart was there. My immaculate heart will triumph. It was all about her love and the simplicity of the message. The simplicity. Pray. Especially pray the rosary. You know, pray for the conversion of sinners. Pray for the souls in purgatory. Do penance for your sins and come to Jesus. Turn away from sin and come to Jesus. Not a very complicated message, right? Very simple. It's our mom boiling it down to what we really need to do. So, you know, we look at these, the, the apparitions. You get a lot of Russell at the other one. Uh, Lourdes, Knock, uh, Fatima, especially like Knock, not just because it's in Ireland. Uh, and Deacon Frank lives nearby, actually. Not too far away, probably about an hour's drive away from Knock. Uh, but she didn't even say any words. She didn't even say anything. Uh, it was just, it was perfect. It was her. It was her and her family, right? It was her, St. Joseph, St. John, and there's the Lamb of God on the altar, the Holy Family. They're all praying. What more do you need? Come together as a family and pray. Uh, and perfect. My, you know, the story of Guadalupe, which I'm sure is familiar to so many of you, uh, is is just so beautiful as an example of this. Um, you know, you think of it, uh, you think of the historical context. My goodness, uh, it's soon after the the conquest of, of Mexico, uh, the the Spanish coming in and, and kicking out, destroying the Aztec Empire. What a cruel, brutal, disgusting. Uh, empire, the Aztecs were. I mean, they're tearing people's hearts out while they're still alive, worshiping demons. It was, it was horrendous, right? Uh, not that the Spanish were a heck of a lot better in some ways, right? They came in, they were they were pretty cruel too, enslaving people, killing them. They were no model of very Christian devotion. Uh, um, but uh, there it is. That's the situation. Um, and Juan Diego, who was a native. Uh, he's an older fellow. He's a native. He's a catechumen, I believe, at the time. Wasn't even baptized. Uh, I told him I'm nobody from nowhere. Uh, you know, and he's walking along the road, and, and he meets Mary. She shows up on the hill there. Uh, he's on the way to Mass. So I'm sure she didn't want to keep him too long, because she didn't want to be late for Mass, right? But uh, uh, she talks to him in his native language, right? The Nahuatl language. Uh, and she's very affectionate. She calls him Little Juan, or as, as the Spanish translation would have been, Juanito, right? Little Juan. Uh, and what does she want? She wants a church to be built. And why is that significant? You know, the church isn't for Mary. The church is for Jesus, right? And the church is also for her people. Why should Juan Diego have to walk all the way there to go to Mass? Build a church here. It's a much shorter, much shorter walk to Mass. I'll be with you. I'm not just in Mexico City with the conquerors. I want to be out here with the little people, right? like us. Uh, um, it's great. She wants to be there. She's a mother. She's a mother. Now, of course, she, uh, Juan Diego goes in, and the institutional church, you know, is very dubious about these things. Uh, uh, and you can imagine today uh, a little Native American fellow showing up uh, at uh, 450 Madison Avenue, uh, uh, asking to see the cardinal. Uh, you know, that would be pretty, pretty funny, actually. It's sad. But anyway, the bishop says, all right, come on. Uh, okay, show me. Right? He must be from Missouri, the show me state. All right, show me, right? Um, so on his way home, Juan Diego reports into mom, right? Uh, he tells her, you know, that that's what happened. And he says, look, I'm nobody. Please send somebody else. And she says, no, no, no. you're my guy. Uh, you're the guy I chose. Uh, I want you to do this. So, okay. Uh, she says, go back to the bishop tomorrow and see what he says. So Juan Diego goes back. Bishop's a little more open. Uh, Juan Diego goes back, tells Mary about that. And, you know, the bishop uh, wanted the sign. He wanted the sign. Right? Just like Zechariah. Wanted this sign. He didn't believe the angel like like Mary did. He wanted the sign. So Mary says, "Okay, no, no problem. I'll give you a sign. Come back to her." Unfortunately, life intervenes. Juan Diego's uncle gets sick. So uh, he's. <laughs> it's funny. He has to go to town to get medicine, but he doesn't want to run to Mary because he has to go get up. So he he scoots around uh, uh, the hill and goes the other way to to miss. Her. Well, the next day, 
uh, he's going to get a priest because he thinks his uncle's about to die. And he also tries another path to get around Mary, but she catches him. Right? She sees him, and he comes down to see him. And um, Juan Diego tries to sweet talk her away. Oh, my pretty lady, I hope you had a nice night. I hope you slept well. You know, trying to get one over on Mary uh, to make an excuse for, for him not showing up the previous day. And, uh, and Mary then knows what's going on in Juan Diego's heart. He's troubled because he's on. And she has that beautiful thing she says to him. She says, uh, am I not your mother? Are you not under my protection? What are you worried about? Uh, it's it's just so beautiful. Why be afraid of everything? I'm here. I'm your mom. You're under my protection. My pictures of Mary are those ones from the Middle Ages where the people are under her mantle. Right? She has her blue mantle out, and the people are all gathered under it. It's beautiful. He gave the sign, right? The roses wrapped in the tilma. And remember, she arranged those roses with her own hands. Right? Her human hands arranged those. Just as she probably arranged flowers and plants in her own home in that little hovel that she lived in in, in Nazareth. What a humble, beautiful thing she did. And of course, you know the rest of the story, of course. Uh, uh, the bishops, you know, he unrolls the tilma, the bishop sees the apparition, uh, you know, the, the image, which is still there today. Right? It's still there today. Uh, miraculously. You know, it's a beautiful story because it says so much to us about our devotion to Mary and our, our discipleship. Juan Diego, our journey. We're all on a journey. The gospel is filled with people on a journey. Mary was always rushing around. She went in haste, right? She's running around. Jesus was always on a journey. He had no place to lay his head, right? Some man has no place to lay his head. He's always on the move. Uh, we're always on, on the journey. And think of Mary. I'm to say, she had a frequent flyer in mind. Nazareth. Wherever Elizabeth was, Bethlehem, and Egypt, back to Nazareth, uh, back to Jerusalem, back to Nazareth, following Jesus around, you know, and she's all eventually to Ephesus, right, all over the place. Uh, uh, she's on the move, and she makes she's all around on the apparitions too. She's been everywhere. She's been in Japan. She's been in Rwanda. She's been in uh, America. Uh, uh, she has been in Mexico. Actually, she's been in South America. She's been at least in Peru and uh, Colombia that I know of. Uh, France, Portugal, Spain, uh, England, Ireland. I mean, name a country where she where she, where she hasn't been. I think it would be hard. Um, so uh, she's always on the move, uh, and that's a, a lot of the disciple. Pope Francis uh, was talking about this, and he said we can't think of the Christian life apart from this path, meaning the path of discipleship. There is always a journey, a journey that he took first, the journey of humility, the journey too of humiliation of denying oneself and then rising. And that's not just Jesus. That was Mary who did that too. And that's what we can do too. Uh, you know, she, um, Mary's a very persistent character as she showed to Juan Diego, right? She didn't let him get away with scooting around the other side of the hill. She comes after him as she comes after us. Anybody who has a devotion to Mary, I think, knows that, that she, uh, she, you know, you're always on my mind, right? She's always on our mind. She's always coming in there and coming after us. Uh, um, it's hard to avoid her, especially when you go into church and there's so many pictures. Oh, yeah, okay, there's mom. And so my rosary today, okay. Uh, but they're always caring for us, just like our own mothers, right? Uh, and, you know, you never stop being a mother or, or to your children. And same with, same with Mary. She's always a mother to us. Uh, we're always under her protection. We're always under her mantle. Uh, uh, and she's always watching, watching out for us. And uh, it's this that I think is such a, uh, um, an attractive thing for us in our devotion uh, uh, to Mary. The Catholic faith would be, I think, so much less rich without uh, devotion to, to Mary. Um, you know, Mother Teresa said that we should love Jesus as Mary loves Jesus and love Mary as Jesus loves Mary. And I think we would be really missing something. Uh, without that. I think also us men in particular, I think devotion to Mary is especially attractive to us because I think, I really believe that it is an appeal to our sense of chivalry. Uh, uh, back to the old days of, of the chivalric knights, you know, carrying their ladies' banner into, into battle. I think this is something especially for us. Uh, you know, we men, we protect our women. Uh, it sounds very old-fashioned, I know, very sexist and all that, but uh, we have special devotion to our mothers, to our wives. 
Um, it's, I think, really particularly attractive uh, uh, to us as men. And, you know, again, we're doing this in continuity with the saints throughout history. The early church was devoted to Mary. There are pictures in the catacombs from the second century showing Mary holding the baby Jesus. There were churches dedicated to Mary uh, in the 300s before Christianity even became legal. St. Mary Major, the beautiful, awesome church in Rome, was dedicated around 430, 430. Uh, um, and it's been there ever since. But prayers to Mary have been said since way back. Uh, um, every father of the church preached about uh, a Mary, some of them in enormous quantity. Uh, uh, songs were written about her. Poems were written about her. Uh, our devotion to Mary is something that is so deeply ingrained in our in our church. Um, it's just amazing. Uh, um, the, uh, this is both East and West Church, too. It's not just the Latin side. The Eastern Church, I mean, the number of icons and prayers to, uh, to Mary is astounding. My favorite uh, prayer, aside from the Hail Mary, is the Subtuum Presidium. We fly to thy patron prayer. Uh, this is very deeply in the Greek and Latin tradition. It's used in the Greek liturgy, Byzantine liturgy. Uh, and it's also, I believe, in the office, um, I think it was during Advent. I know it's, this is a prayer that's said during in the office as well. Uh, you get a partial indulgence, by the way, just, just for saying it, so that's a good thing. And if you get a partial indulgence during November, you can offer it to the Holy Spells in Purgatory. Just a little side note there about uh, indulgence is one of my other favorite subjects in the world. Uh, for a long time, people thought this prayer came about in the Middle Ages, but actually, uh, earlier last century, they found a fragment in a, a, a pipe fragment in Coptic, which was the ancient language of uh, Egypt, uh, the Egyptian Christians, and still today, actually, the Egyptian Christians, from the around the year 250, this prayer. And you know that that probably was not the first time they, they said it when they wrote it down at the time. That was being used in liturgy uh, within, you know, two centuries of the resurrection of Jesus. And it goes back. Uh, you know, our, our, our common translation is we fly to thy patronage, a holy mother of God, despise not our petitions and our necessities, but deliver us always from every danger, a glorious and blessed virgin. Uh, beautiful, beautiful prayer for when we're in trouble or when we when someone we know is in trouble and we want to say a quick prayer for them. It's a beautiful prayer to say. Um, again, that's my, my favorite prayer. Um, just recommend it to everybody. Everybody has their favorite. Maybe it's the Memorare, memory, maybe it's the Salve Regina, or maybe it's just the simple Hail Mary. Uh, we have all these beautiful prayers uh, uh, to Mary. Uh, the Magnificat, which you guys have the privilege of saying as part of your office every day, uh, is is such a wonderful prayer. I mean, I mean, just think of it. You're saying the same words that Mary did. Right? Saying the same words that Mary did. Uh, it's just amazing. So by, by doing all of the, you know, our spirituality about, of Mary and our devotion to Mary, you know, it all, always brings us back to Scripture, right? Because all of these prayers, all these devotions, they go back to Scripture. And because of that, they go back to Jesus. So we're uniting ourselves with all our fathers and mothers in faith by, by following their path and going back to Mary, through Mary, to Jesus. Devotion to Mary brings us closer to her son, uh, it brings us closer to the Eucharist, which is always a good sign of true Marian devotion. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I said to one of my, uh, I have a good friend who's a Methodist, and I said, uh, you know, uh, if you start uh, down the Marian path, you know, once Mary gets her hooks in you, forget about it. Uh, uh, you're done. Uh, she's going to drag you in closer and closer to Jesus. She's going to drag you closer to the Eucharist. You know, you're going to get Catholic before the end. Uh, um, but that's what she, that's what she always she always does, um, you know. Um, th again, this is my this is probably my favorite subject uh, uh, to talk about with anybody, um, and it's something I think that all of us uh, can can relate to. Uh, I think it's something that all of us um, understand. I think in our hearts more than we understand even in our heads, and I think the regular people out there the same thing. The regular people, the regular Catholics love Mary, and they know. 
Uh, they may not be able to explain the perpetual virginity or the uh, or what the Immaculate Conception is and how the retroactive redemption. They 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 know their mother. Uh, they know their mother loves her, loves them, and they know that their mother will lead them to Jesus. Uh, and that's if we can do anything uh, in our preaching and teaching and mission and service. Uh, if you guys can do anything, uh, is to affirm people in that and lead people to that. Uh, and I hope that you're far down the path of that yourselves. I hope you're further down the path uh, than I am. Um, I'm a lousy disciple, uh, but she's dragging me along, and uh, that's because she loves me, and she loves you too. So there we go. That's my that's my. Job. <laughs> and I, I don't and I don't know if you uh, if you could see the chats. But let me tell you, uh, you, you, somebody remarked about my Yankee shirt this morning. Um, you, you, you hit it out of the ballpark. Absolutely wonderful. I mean, you've got some, some of my skeptical students in the program loving it. So you really, I can't, no, it's amazing. I can't thank you enough. I really can't thank you enough. I, and maybe we'll get you back to talk about indulgence at some point. <laughs> Be happy to. <laughs> all right. Um, so, I, and I want to thank all of you men in the program who kind of uh, hung in there and and uh, throughout this pandemic have been going to classes on Zoom. I know it's a pain of whatever, but um, just hang in there. And I think the value of Zoom was proven to us this morning. Uh, with Ed, Ed Mankman's so wonderful, wonderful presentation. I, I never got even a chance to hand over the con to you. So, uh, and I'm, rec I'm recording this for the first time. I'm using the recording, uh, but I'm not sure how it's going to work. Well, we'll see. Um, with your indulgence, I'd like to end with a prayer. <clears throat> and since you, 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 uh, oh, someone wants to ask a question. Go ahead. Um, good morning, Fernando. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Ed. I very much enjoyed your presentation. Um, it was very edifying. I learned a lot, and I thank you for being with us this morning. I have one quick question, and that is, as we prepare to be, God willing, ordained, ordained as deacons, even in our lives as lay Christians, um, one common opposition from people of faith, Christians, and even those who are not, who are atheist or agnostic, is why do Catholics, um, why do we honor Mary? Why do we worship her? Why do we pray to her? Different, different ways of expressing the same sentiment. So my question is, what's the quickest or the best way um, to defend that, to in, in, acting as an apologetic, defend that criticism, which is, all, which is not always from, from a bad place. I think many times it's just from ignorance. So my question is, what's a good, simple way to defend our love of Mother Mary? Well, uh, uh, the first thing we say is, look, we don't worship Mary. Uh, we only worship God. Uh, we honor Mary, right? The same way that we would honor anybody else in our lives, the way you honor your own mother, right? Uh, uh, the other thing is, we're doing this out of obedience to God. God said, honor your mother and father. Jesus honored Mary, so we should as well. Uh, you know, the scripture is full of examples of people praying for other people and asking people to pray for other people. Well, we're just following the example of the apostles and the, and the scripture. We're just asking Mary for her help to pray for us. Go to your son and help us. Um, one of the, uh, and I think that's something that people ordinarily ordinary understand. I mean, if you want something from somebody, you go to one of their good friends and ask them to intervene on your behalf. So that's all we're doing. It's, it's not that complicated or special. It's, it's very human, and I think people understand. And you're, you're an attorney, and you could probably appreciate this. I, I look at intercessory prayer as sort of uh, advocacy prayer, you know? Um, I'm going to court, and I want my lawyer with me. Uh, so I'm going to Jesus. I want his mother with me. <laughs> so she's going to stand with me as I'm talking to, to, to Jesus. I'm talking to the Lord. Uh, and I do that with, with you know, the saints as well. I'm going, I'm going to prayer with Francis, you know. St. Francis is going to be standing with me as my advocate. Yeah. Uh, that's the intercessory prayer that I see. Yeah. Uh, what better person have standing with you than the mother of God? Absolutely. We just did, our Jewish friends just had their celebration of Purim uh, uh, earlier this fall. Purim is a feast that goes back to the Old Testament, uh, the story of Queen Esther, right? 
went to the king to intercede to save the people of Israel. So that's all we're doing. We're going to the king, but we want to ask the queen to do it for us. Stand with us. Come with us. Stand Absolutely. Absolutely. Any other questions? Well, you mentioned the uh, the Eastern Church's devotion to, to the Mother of God. So I, I, I want to end with this prayer from uh, a, a Orthodox prayer book. So we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O loving Mother of our good King, pure and blessed Virgin Mary, Pour the grace of your Son and our God into our into my restless soul. Lead me by your prayers to always do the right thing so that I may spend my whole life without blame and reach paradise through your prayers, Mother of God, for you are pure and blessed forever. Amen. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, guys. We'll be talking to you soon. God bless all. Have a blessed bless feast all. day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving.